and welcome to Hello from Bhutan. I am Namgizam. Today on Hello from Bhutan, we have somebody who's not a Bhutanese. Uh, the first time, I think, a non-Bhutanese on the podcast. I'm very excited to introduce you to former ambassador Curtis Chin. He's a very well-known face in international media, especially for commentating on Asian matters. So Southeast Asian as well as South Asian matters. You would have seen him on CNN and several other international media. He's also on the advisory board of the Bhutan Foundation currently. And the latest, the most recent chair to the Asia Center of the Milken Institute. It gives me great pleasure to have him on my podcast because he's a longtime friend of Bhutan's, has been visiting Bhutan for several, several years, many years, I think almost annually. That's what former master shared with me. It's been a while since you visited Bhutan. I think the last visit you was in 2019 and you do intend to visit as soon as possible. But how did this relationship with Bhutan begin and why do you keep visiting? Well, first, what a delight uh, to be on your podcast. I didn't know I'm maybe the first Bhutanese, but maybe a little bit of Bhutanese at heart. So uh, you can kind of count me sort of uh, as one of your uh, uh, Bhutanese guests. Uh, but indeed, I think my first trip uh, to Bhutan was maybe, I don't know, uh, it was like the year after Bhutan first got television. So maybe my first visit was 1999 or 2000. And I was living at that time, I'm an American, but I was living at that time in Hong Kong. Um, and just uh, a great friend is from Bhutan. And she and her husband said, you should visit. And so my very first visit back then, I don't know, again, 99, 2000, was to go to uh, Jomahari Base Camp. You know, now you can even drive a little bit closer. But uh, then it was, I don't know, a three or four day uh, back and forth uh, walk. And I fell in love with, of course, the people and my friend's family and the mountains. And indeed, I've come back regularly ever since. I think even once I had an apartment in Bhutan for a month. But uh, I've been back in many capacities uh, so one, just, you know, first as a tourist, then visiting, you know, I call them my Bhutanese family. But then in my role as U.S. ambassador to the Asian Development Bank, I came in to look at hydro projects, road projects, rural electrification projects, visiting the Bhutan resident mission uh, of the Asian Development Bank there. And that I've been honored to have been invited back as either a speaker or as a participant in some of the, the conferences that take place. You know, one was all about better business uh, Bhutan. And I think I even attended once uh, one of the gross national happiness uh, big meetings. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, I just like to be in Bhutan. You know, I don't always need to go see something new or try something new. It is really a magical place. And so I'm pleased to see that Bhutan has reopened to tourists. For many people, it's, you know, uh, a bucket list destination. They're not as blessed as I feel uh, I am to have visited so many times. It's a once in a lifetime destination visit uh, for them. And I can understand why. It is an amazing uh, place. And you know, I've been uh, able, you know, because my father was in uh, government, in the military and at embassies. Uh, and I would, so I've been honored to be able to live around the world growing up. But Bhutan is in many ways very special. So right now, you know, I'm beaming into your podcast from Thailand, where I was a kid. And I'm back in Thailand uh, at the moment. And the Bhutan-Thailand relationship is also a very special one. You know, these are really two of the last, I got to look at my geography, but really two of the last Buddhist kingdoms uh, of the world. And so a really special relationship between two very special uh, places. So, so I look forward to indeed seeing you uh, in person on my next trip back. That last trip indeed, I think was November 2019. You know, the world kind of shut down February and March of 2020. So my interactions these past, what, two and a half years has been zooming to uh, Bhutan. 
uh, versus arriving in person. So, but look forward to uh, going back. And actually, I'm looking forward to also seeing in person some of the great work of the Bhutan Foundation. So indeed, was honored during the pandemic to join as one of the newest uh, advisory board members. Right, and congratulations. I think it would present you an opportunity to go back to the Chomolari Base Camp because they have this huge school uh, called the School Among Snow Leopards, if I'm not mistaken, and it's funded by the Bhutan Foundation, and they have like eight students in there. I think it might take you back uh, to your first trip. But what do you think is, I mean, we've had so much happen um, during the course of the pandemic and immediately after we've had tremendous disruption in the tourism sector. We've had a rebranding of our country, Bhutan, believe. Um, so watching this from a distance, what are your thoughts? Well, one, you know, no matter what the brand is, uh, Bhutan is a very special place. And to be honest, even though I followed, I actually wasn't uh, so aware of the new branding and the history of the branding. You know, in my old life, prior to being a U.S. ambassador, you know, I worked with a big public relations firm named Burson Marsteller. I was mentored by a wonderful man who sadly passed away right before the pandemic, Harold Burson, at the age of 98. And clients, so maybe one of the more notable ones from Asia, was Hong Kong. And so the team, I was not directly involved, but that team worked on the, the branding of Hong Kong. And that branding is Asia's world city. And so that brand continues onwards to today. So no matter what uh, the brand is, and there will always be supporters and detractors of any country's you know, branding, uh, the key is that a tourism ministry or government with their private sector partners invest in a branding to bring it to life. And so when I look at across Southeast Asia, here it's uh, amazing Thailand. Next door, it's incredible India. You know, to my northeast, it's Cambodia, Kingdom of Wonders. You know, all these different, you know, kind of brand uh, slogans. You know, some you might like, some you might not like. But the key is to invest in it and bring it to life. And one of the lessons I learned from my world uh, of, you know, communications and marketing is also people always need to think through in these branding efforts, who is the audience? You know, how might you have to present and tweak it differently for a Bhutanese audience versus an international traveler audience? And so uh, for me, I'm just so delighted that Bhutan uh, has reopened. I think the, the government will want to be flexible and think through as their new, you know, uh, system, you know, used to be, I don't remember all my numbers, but let's say it used to be 250 with $70 going to the government. You know, the numbers are switching, but what does that mean to our target tourism audience? And so these wouldn't be, you know, South Asian SARC members, but international visitors, you know, what is the data beginning to show? And they might need to tweak the policies. And that's normal and natural. So no one should be saying, oh, we proved you were right or we proved you were wrong. It's natural for the government that need to readjust if they need to readjust. But how exciting it is that, you know, not just Bhutan, but that so much of the Asia and Pacific region is reopening. My own branding, when people ask me, should I go to Bhutan? I'm like, well, absolutely, you should go. And then you tell me what you're interested in because Bhutan offers a diversity uh, of interest for the visitor. You know, so I actually just coincidentally yesterday, I was just talking to two people who are leaving for Bhutan soon. And they said to me, wow, you're the first person I ever talked to that had more to say than, oh yeah, I visited once. I'm like, oh, I visited, I don't know, 10 to 15 times. What do you want to do? Do you want to hike? Do you want to do culture? Uh, do you want to just share your own uh, insights? And so for me, you know, each time I go back now, it's really just to see friends and, and uh, my like uh, what I call my Bhutanese family. But when I'm in Bhutan, I also want to take the time and try, if I can, to share my own knowledge. So whether they're young journalists, 
or whether, you know, my focus, you know, I'm with this big think tank called the Milken Institute, which is a lot about how do you generate prosperity? How do you get people that have some money to live a meaningful life, to help others to have meaningful lives? And a lot of it really involves that intersection of government, private sector, and civil society. And so very clearly, Bhutan has a very strong, efficient, and if you believe the, the ratings, as I hope they're, they're true, a very non-corrupt government, which is so rare as you think about a lot of our Asia-Pacific region. So solid government. But a question I always ask you know, people when I'm in Bhutan is, what about those other sectors? Civil society is in some ways very robust, but it's also very grant-based. But for something to be sustainable, that's not just based on tax revenues or grant requests, you need a thriving private sector. And so I would encourage the government and visitors to pay attention to the private sector, you know, buy things from the private sector, you know. And I love, love that you shared. Support the private sector. Go buy things that are made in Bhutan, you know, that's like locally Bhutanese. So I love that. And I think this is like a heartening message for anybody who's listening to this podcast. You know, the fun parts of Bhutan that a lot of, I mean, people who are coming in for like a one-time visit may not be privy to. Um, your friends with one of my closest friends, Bhutan Street Fashion. I mean, who would have thought a former US ambassador, your ambassador coming in and becoming friends with Bhutan Street Fashion? Like, <laughs> how did that relationship happen? And do you recommend Bhutan Street Fashion to people who are visiting Bhutan? <laughs> well, t- too funny. Um, I think we were connected on Twitter. I don't remember. Twitter or Instagram, which to me is also, okay, so it must be Instagram, but it's the power, again, of social media. And so, you know, we talk about Bhutan's new branding. Bhutan will also want to think through uh, how to use social media. But even there, Bhutan will need to think through its audience, right? You know, it's often the age of, like, my fellow visitors of Bhutan seem to be, I would like to say, much older than me. But they'll be like, oh, no, I'm the same age. Uh, but, you know, maybe there aren't so many young 20-something-year-olds uh, that have the time or resources to come to Bhutan, you know, versus some, I don't know, 70-year-old retiree who's always dreamed to come to Bhutan. Uh, but, no, it's through the power of social media. And so, like, even for me, you know, I make this little one-minute YouTube video that's called Asia Minute. And my original idea with the great buddy, Jose Calazo, who's like an Asia watcher and videographer, was can we just like take a minute, an Asia minute, and encourage, you know, our viewers, how many, how few or, you know, uh, fewer many there are, to take some time and learn a little bit more about the diversity of Asia. And that includes, you know, the amazing place that we're talking about today of Bhutan. So I think one of my Asia minutes and tell all your listeners to to go to my Asia Minute channel on YouTube. Yes, I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah, And you know how all of us have like some form of ADHD. And like me, I will only watch a video if I know if it's one minute. Like I'm not Bhutan Street Fashion <laughs> Karma. Like he will watch a 30 minute video on YouTube. I belong to that group of people who will be like, how much time do I need to read this? How much time do I need to watch this? And like one minute, it's perfect. And I do recommend it. And like everybody, like Ambassador So Well Traveled. He's done this wonderful video on Bhutan as well. And I think you should watch it. Uh, I will plug it when I put this 
to social media so you can go and watch it <laughs> while you're listening to this uh, podcast as well. But what is your favorite food? Because you know how every time we have like very white driven media on cuisine, right? And they're yeah. always putting uh, cuisine from Laos and Vietnam as number one, which I think is yeah. more suitable to a white person's palate. Uh, what about yeah. you? Because you know Asia, you've traveled. What is your favorite food in Bhutan? And uh, would you agree with a lot of people saying, okay, maybe it's the gentler food, <laughs> but we are really spicy. So what is your food when you come to Bhutan? <laughs> well, let's talk food. I do want to come back for a second later on fashion. Yeah. Uh, but on food, you know, you'll have to help me uh, figure out what it's called. I love that it's like a really fatty, <laughs> uh, is it pork with chili? Pasha it, is it? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I love exactly. spicy. Yeah. Uh, and I probably love like fatty uh, food, uh, but I love spicy. But you know that doesn't sound very like vegetarian or Buddhist of me. But I love spicy pork and that kind of stuff. But you know it's interesting when you talk about you know the the broader world. You know I spent four years living in the Philippines. You know, uh, and I think some of the Filipino food is amazing, but people don't know it either, right? And often. It's driven by, you know, a single dish or it's by, you know, some influencer. And so there is opportunity for people to better understand Bhutanese food. You know, when I'm in Bhutan, I'm always like, you know, let's go have some momos, you know, the dumplings. But I'm like, well, is that really Bhutanese or is that like Tibetan? You know, I don't know. Sometimes things kind of all merge and connect. So we always think of you know, like emadashi and some of those classic Bhutanese uh, foods, which sometimes every now and then I want to taste, right? And I haven't been able to go to Bhutan during this pandemic, but luckily I have Bhutanese friends in the U.S. and elsewhere. So even better, I've had home-cooked meals of Bhutanese food, but then they have to source the ingredients. And so one of the challenges is that. And so, but, you know, people ask me, you know, why should they go to Bhutan? And to be honest, I don't always put food at the top of the list. You know, it's the nature, it's the culture, it's the people. It's just such a unique country that I tell people, you know, it's almost like defy stereotypes, Bhutan. That they'll think, oh, oh, isn't that the happy place? I'm like, well, it's not really the happiest place if you look at data. But indeed, I think it is showing the way, uh, Bhutan is showing the way by saying that happiness cannot simply be defined by our per capita wealth, right? Uh, and so it is a special and unique place. And for me, actually, the food is very unique. Whoever thought I'd be eating like cheesy, like uh, <laughs> food, like cheesy mushrooms, cheesy chili, you know, it never even occurred to me. Now it's so cheesy normal. Potatoes. <laughs> cheesy potatoes, all my favorites. Uh, but some people would never even occur to them when they think of Asian food, they don't think of cheese, to be honest, right? Uh, Early, you had asked me about uh, fashion, you know, so I was honored to meet, you know, one of your buddies uh, uh, to learn about uh, fashion. And so that old, you know, I think that may, if you work in a government office, I think you still have to wear traditional dress. But, you know, over time, I've seen less traditional dress on some people, right? Uh, for good and for bad. You know, as a visitor, I'd say it's for bad because you like that special uniqueness of this culture. But maybe for a Bhutanese, you know, I just want to wear sweatpants, you know, I'm not working, right? And so there's that balance, right? Because, you know, people can't see me, but I really, I'm like in shorts and a t-shirt on this podcast. Uh, but the stereotype of Americans, which may be a little bit true, is that we're more sloppy. <laughs> we love our t-shirts and basketball shorts and all, 
versus more formal uh, in our dress. So clearly, when I think about Bhutan, one of the images is the beautiful traditional dress. I, I think there's ways to take some of the traditional dress and fabrics and modernize them and then create new markets. So I remember my very first trip to Bhutan, you know, so many years ago, I thought I'd buy a traditional Bhutanese outfit, right? Uh, the go. And I think I bought two, but maybe I've worn them like three times each. But more practically than the last uh, two or three trips in Bhutan, I wanted to make a, a regular shirt out of that beautiful plaid kind of fabric. And there's certain patterns I associate with Bhutan. Like there's a red and blue one with a yellow line, right? Which I love. And so I said to my Bhutanese friends, oh, I want to buy a shirt in this. It was so difficult. And so ultimately, I had to go buy the fabric. And then I had to go to that local market. And I found a tailor. And they made me a shirt, which I love, right? And I think I'm even on Instagram with another shirt I had made. But, you know, to be honest, a normal tourist who might only be in Bhutan five days versus I'm there like three weeks doesn't always have the time to go buy the fabric, to go find a tailor, to have one fitting, and then to have a final. But for me, there's a business opportunity there. Another example is on you know that main street in Timpu. I had a, a friend, a photographer, Ellen Kaplowitz, who was in town. We saw this like really we found because we talked to him. Was a college kid, and he had, you know, those traditional Bhutanese boots, but they were cut to be shoes. And I said, oh, I want those. Oh, and he said, oh, our school ordered them for our graduating batch. And I said, well, I want to order them too. So uh, do I give a shout out to Pinky, my boot man? Uh, so I had to go to the shop with Ellen. And we had these shoes made, which everyone loves. And they were relatively inexpensive. And I'm like, well, maybe we should buy a lot of them and sell them at Bloomingdale's in New York for 10 times the price. But for me, these are just funny little examples. There's business opportunities there, building off of the beautiful culture and heritage of Bhutan that is a little bit more modernized that might help keep more of those tourist dollars in country. Another thing is uh, music. You know, of course, there's traditional music. But then, yeah, 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 am I supposed to name people? I don't know. But then let's say one of my friends is this amazing Bhutanese rapper, you know? And so, and then you can use rap to encourage young people uh, to think, uh, to change, you know, and all. So if I think about all of the arts and culture of a wonderful place like Bhutan, there's, of course, the traditional. Uh, maintaining that culture and art is so important. But there's also that notion of how do you get young people engaged and involved? And also, are there new business opportunities there to help ensure that it's sustainable? So, so, so many wonderful things I would encourage people that when they visit uh, Bhutan, in addition to climbing, you know, uh, Tiger's Nest, <laughs> what else are you going to do while you're there? Enjoy and spend money uh, in Bhutan. <laughs> I love that, spend money. Finally, though, when you think spending money, you know how people have this notion that it's really expensive to travel to Bhutan. I, I loved the perspective that you shared with me. And if you could share it with everybody who's listening to this podcast. Absolutely. Well, one, I know that it's evolved since I was last in Bhutan, 200 or 250. But I would always say to people in the old days, when I say, oh, you should go to Bhutan, they would say to me, oh, isn't it restricted by the number of visas? I said, it's really not exactly so. Sometimes it's restricted because there aren't enough seats on planes during peak season. But 
it's sometimes restricted, self-restricting in that people hear that in the old days, let's say it's 200 or $250 a day per person that you pay in advance before you get your visa. So in their mind, it's, wow, it's a $250 visa fee. In some ways, technically true in that you got to pay that before you get your visa. But I will say to them, but you know, if you were doing a vacation in London or Paris, you probably are spending $250, $300, $400, sometimes on just the hotel. And at least under the old system, that minimum $250 got you a nice, you know, uh, uh, three-star hotel. It got you uh, 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 meals. It got you a, a wonderful driver and guide. And yes, indeed, though, your itinerary is somewhat planned out before you go in. But they're like, oh, I didn't know that. So it's, in a way, an all-inclusive package. Uh, yeah, yeah, you pay for you know, incidentals and souvenirs. But in many ways, it's like lodging, food, driver, transport, all included in that. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that. And so right now, you know, I have to think, through how do I explain it? You know, because I'm always an advocate for people to go to Bhutan. I'm so grateful for your candid insights and what you think we could do um, to attract people and what people should do when they come to Bhutan. And I hope to see you very soon so that you can have another Asian Minute video in Bhutan. Oh, absolutely. Looking very much forward. And then you have to make a guest appearance. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yes, yes. I promise that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So wonderful to be with you.